1: Forests, marshes, savanna grasslands and creeks, estuaries, lagoons, sandbars and tidal islands were important physical features of the lower Gambia River Basin's landscape. In the 18th century, visitors to the area would have seen forests, estuaries, a river, marshes and the broad savanna lands within a few kilometers of the banks of the Gambia River. The region had unique ecological, social Economic and political characteristics that for centuries shaped the lives of the people who live there. Welcome to the African Studies Channel of the New Books Network. I am your host, Madina Tiam. In today's episode, we are going to discuss land. We are going to discuss Mandinka political elites, forest dwelling spirits, jihads, and peanuts production with our guest, Dr. Asan Sah. Dr. Saar is an associate professor of history at Ohio University, and you just heard an expert from his book, Islam, Power and Dependency in the Gambia River Basin, The Politics of Land Control, 1790 to 1940, which was published with the University of Rochester Press in 2016. Welcome to the show, Dr. Saar. Thank you very,
0: very much for joining us today. Thank you, Madina, for having me. It's a pleasure to talk to you about my work.
1: So Can you begin by introducing yourself and telling us more about your background, about your training, and how you came to develop this specific project?
0: Sure. Um, Like you mentioned, I am an associate professor of history at Ohio University. I came to this university in fall of 2013. Prior to that, I taught at the College of Charleston in South Carolina Um, after receiving my PhD at Michigan State University. Under the supervision of Walter Houghton and David Robinson. I came into this project in the spring of 2006 while taking a graduate seminar on the Atlantic slave trade. In that class, I was introduced to great works of African uh, historians that seem to underappreciate the important ways land arrangements shape or were shaped by political and spiritual systems of pre colonial Africans. In this case, people in the Lower Gambia River. In trying to explain why slavery was prevalent in late 18th and 19th century Africa, some scholars seem to suggest that pre-colonial Africa was characterized by low population densities relative to the amount of land available. That land was in abundance and thus it uh, had limited, limited value. Uh, uh, some of these scholars also argued that only uh, the only option uh, for any ambitious person who wanted to accumulate wealth was to own people since labor was in short supply, not land. Uh, Others uh, uh, propose a more nuanced uh, answer to the question by suggesting that population densities were not necessarily low in all of Africa. but African societies did not recognize individual ownership of of land. So that African law only allowed communal ownership, which by implication was very restrictive. As a graduate student, I reflected on uh, the the conclusions of many of those studies. uh, And as I uh, did so, I could not help but think about the 20th century conditions in my tiny farming village on the Gambia's North Bank, where my late father and my uh, male siblings worked on the peanut and millet fields to eke out a living. In this village, like in others uh, around it, uh, land relations relationships were deeply hierarchical and spiritual. And because of that, I wondered, might there be some history behind this arrangement uh, that is this land arrangement in my village or in my part of the Gambia that I can investigate to challenge this this dominant uh, this dominant worldview? In brief, this is how I how 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 I developed. I began to to work on this project,
1: and so your book begins in that period of the late eighteenth century. So could you? Paint for us the political picture of the Lower Gambia River in that time period, from the late 18th through the mid-19th century. And in particular, could you explain to us why did land control become a central feature of Mandinka political power building um, and the political culture in the region at the time?
0: For over four centuries, people living along the banks of the Gambia River uh, lived in separate political units. Uh, some have called them kingdoms, others refer to them as states. Uh, these were uh, Nyomi, Jokadu, Badibu, Jara, Kiang, and Kombo. Uh, if you notice, Fonyi um, is another region or district that I did not mention here, but um, it was it was mainly dominated by uh, Jola-speaking peoples, who were more or less a decentralized society, whose people did not share the same political logic or, or system that the Mandinka or the Wolof had. All these political units had ties with Kabul, with the exception of Onye, um, uh, again, uh, the more powerful political state uh, to the south of the Gambia River, that's that's Kabu. Uh, the ruling class in Nyumi, Jokadu, Badibo, etc., uh, they developed a very close relationship with the Kabunkas. From the mid 19th century, Lower Gapians referred to this political class as the Soninke, who were notorious for rejecting Islam, consuming alcohol, and unleashing a violent and an oppressive uh, system on their subjects. Uh, Gambian elders I interview refer to this era as the period when the Kedifai Solu were in power. That is the period between the late 18th uh, century to the mid 19th to the to the mid 19th century. The Kedifai Mansulu were the were were the were the kings whose authority were, was drawn lightly from the guns that they possessed. So one of the characteristic features of this, of this uh, political class was that no one dared to challenge their authority. As the power holders, they also viewed themselves as the bankotillus, meaning the owners of the land. Uh, control of land during this period was a means through which uh, political exclusion of the peasant population was, was, was ensured as in the uh, in the uh, as in the uh, 18 as the 1821 Mandinary case that i write about in the book source in 1821 two methodist missionaries named john baker and john morgan uh, arrived in the gambia and they wanted to establish a mission uh, a mission station there uh, so they visited the uh, state of combo and had an audience with the Mansa of Kombo, who was then based in, a, in one of the royal towns called Yundum, the royal towns of Kombo. Of, of, of uh, the Mansa was then based there. And they explained themselves that they needed land and so on and so forth. And the Mansa told them, okay, you go with my servant here and look around my state. Anywhere that you see a land that you really wanted, uh, come back and let me know. So they, t- they went to a a, a, a town called Mandinari on the mouth of the Gambia, Gambia River and, and uh, saw a site that they were interested in and they went back and told the, uh, told the king, who then gave them the permission to go and settle on that land. Uh, but in the process of starting the construction, the Mandinari elders drove them away uh, even though the missionaries explained that it was the king who gave them permission to settle there, uh, the community still uh, uh, refused. So when the king got the news that the elders of Mandinari had chased away the, the missionaries, he himself went there and had an audience with the, with the, with the elders and the elders still rejected his, his 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 instructions so he threatened them but the argument that the elders uh, put forward was 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 uh, instructive because they said that the land was theirs and by virtue of their bad rights uh, nobody can alienate the land without 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 their without their permission the king countered that argument saying that as they Owner of the land, as the as the king, he had the power to to, to 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 do whatever he wanted. And if and this was the threat that he that he that he uh, the, that he gave to the to the elders of Mandineri. If anyone challenged his authority, he said he would tie ropes around their necks, uh, basically to strangulate them. And as soon as he delivered his his threat the elders um, uh, surrendered and allowed the missionary to, to establish uh, their mission. So for me, I gave a number of different cases uh, in which um, the political class exercised uh, uh, power over the uh, administration of land and and and. and, and, and uh, they benefited from such power because of the kinds of political power that they that they wielded. So I, I talk about uh, those kinds of uh, cases um, in the first part of the book.
1: So land management was a central feature or a key feature of political power. But as you argue in the book also, humans' interactions with spirits and with the realm of non-human beings, with the non-human world, Also heavily influenced land use and influenced the ecology in the lower Gambia River Basin. How so?
0: Yes, uh, lower Gambians believe that land was divided into two spaces: Uh, one land for human human habitation and use, and two lands dwelled by spirits. Unless if one was a hunter, blacksmith, or a Muslim cleric, people generally avoided trespassing on these lands. In people's understanding. These lands were not vacant as many, uh, as many, 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 uh, historians suggest. The fact that people did not, did not settle on certain lands or cultivate certain lands doesn't mean that there was free land available everywhere. Uh, in the Gambia region, the view that spirits could occupy this land, spirits such as Kondorong, which I, I write about. Um, these were the dwarf creature, creatures that look like human beings, but they're very, very, very soft, and often with maybe um, uh, irregular heads. Um, then you have the genes, and then the Ninkankas. The Ninkankas being the dragon. The word for for dragon. Um, they live in these spaces, and people believe that they could ruin the lives of anyone who trespass on these spaces. So the fact that they are these malicious Uh, spirits that occupy certain portions of the forest or of the swamps um, means that for the people who live in in those areas, uh, not all land was, was therefore readily available. Because of this belief also in spirits and spirit lands, many parts of the country was therefore preserved or untouched by human settlements or farmlands by as late as the second half of the 19th century. This is why I argued in the book that this belief in spirit serves as an ecological function. Yes, the people might not have had the conscious consciousness, uh, uh, might not have. Uh, let me put it this way: that they might not have um, uh, been preserving the land as a conscious decision um, of, of conservation, but it was an unintended outcome of this belief system that that that, that prevailed uh, in the area.
1: And so, from the second half of the 19th century onwards, um, you show that massive shifts occur um, in the region in general, but um, also particularly in the Lower Gambia, uh, in the socio political, economic, religious realms. Um, so, can you lay out for us a little bit um, of that history and especially explain these Soninke Marabou wars of the 1840s to the 1900s?
0: Sure. Uh, the second half of the 19th century was, in many ways, uh, transformative. Lots of things happened during this period, uh, among them the rights of the agricultural population against the Soninke ruling class who long dominated the politics of the area. In the Gambia, this uprising is known as the Soninke Marabo Wars. It began when uh, the uh, famous jihadist Mabajahouba wage uh, a jihad against the against the mansa of badiwo uh, rip uh, on the gambia's north bank to the east of to the east of um, then orders came in later uh, people like uh, for the Silla, for the kaba uh, they all wage uh, jihads against the ruling class Historians have discussed the 19th century jihads in the context of their religious inspirations and or aspirations, as well as the outbreaks of these jihads in the aftermath of the slave trade. What seemed to be forgotten is that people in this region were farmers uh, and not slave traders in the first place. Uh, they, were slave tra- they were farmers before, before slave traders uh, or anything else. They were people who wanted to end the oppressiveness of the political system and their exclusion from the political institution and reorganize land relations. So, my uh, 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 focus on, on, on the soninke Marabo War was to help demonstrate how the Mandinka political aristocracy was, aristocracy was brought down, was brought to its knees. That was one first important um, change. That occurred in the, from the mid nineteenth century onwards, um, uh, but these 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 transformations can't be understood in isolation from the other uh, 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 developments that were also equally important. So 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 I talk about that in the second half of the book.
1: Yeah, and as you explain, uh, uh, another important consequence is that, uh, quote-unquote, battle or struggle takes place from the mid-19th century onwards between um, the Marabou, the Muslim clerics, on the one hand, and then the, the local spirits that you discussed earlier, on the other hand. Um, and this battle takes place over the issue of being able to clear land and, um, and, and land will then be used for, for peanut production. Cause, so can you tell us a little bit about these processes, like how these shifts occur um, in that time period?
0: Absolutely. What you are referring to happened in the second half of the 19th century as well. This period saw the influx of people that either identified or were regarded as Muslim clerics, people who claimed to have special powers that enabled them to conquer or convert spirits into Islam. Uh, many of the jeans or the condorons or the ninkinankas were, were non-Muslims. At least that's how they were, they were, they were described. Uh, I argue that it was these Muslim clerics who were responsible for the opening up of, of new lands for peanut, for peanut cultivation during the expansion of commercial agriculture. In return, these Muslim specialists used this to attract more dependents. Uh, to their homes and their villages. Uh, That's the first point. The second point is that stories of Muslim specialists battling with spirits highlight another crucial historical reality. That is, in the Gambia region, warfare was not simply a military reality. That is a kind of physical confrontation. Warfare, wars can also be fought in the spiritual domain. For example, fighting over, over land, could involve people consulting shrines, priests, or Muslim clerics, and to cast spells with the help of these people to cast spells on people that uh, that they are that they are that they are uh, uh, competing with spells that could cause blindness, paralysis, or mental illness. It can also result in even death, all happening because of conflict over land. Uh, so that's 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 number two. Number three, what 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 this uh, topic also also entails is that it means that the Muslim clerics who wage the spiritual jihads against evil spirits um, uh, have an important symbol or an important language to deploy for the public in order to attract people towards them. Some of these spirits could become Muslims and those that refused to accept Islam would be chased out. So this is, these kinds of stories were more or less parts of the karamas or the, or the miracles that some of these, some of these Muslim clerics would, would claim or their followers would claim that they had performed. Uh, Miracles, um, um, uh, serve an important, an important function. They were for, for the audience, uh, for people to be convinced that well such and such marabou or oh Muslim clerics is a, a it's a it's a powerful individual so uh, why not get close to this person for your own solutions for your own uh, to, uh, to find solutions to your own problems so driving away spirits from the land or rendering them harmless resulted in two things i argue um, one uh, the massive clearing of lands for farming and for human settlements Many villages uh, uh, along the banks of the Gambia River uh, appeared uh, uh, from the mid-nineteenth century, uh, going into the twentieth century. In other words, new many new villages uh, and, new, and 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 forests were cleared and established during during this period. The second uh, the second outcome that I also discuss is that the ability for marabouts to attract more followers. Um, but like I said earlier, depended on this ki- the power of these kinds of stories. From then on, marabouts would replace the political class as the landowners. Now they will be the ones who will now uh, be distributing land, uh, or whose permission uh, strangers uh, or, or, or newcomers would actually seek before they can settle on a uh, on a particular place.
1: I. Dr. Sa, I was I was actually about to ask you this question a little bit later, but what you're mm-hmm. saying is so rich, and the connections you're making between the spiritual realm, the material use of land, um, the ways, the different ways that warfare can be waged, um, I'm I'm really curious now to ask you now about your research process for the book and how you build this argument. I mean, I'm, I I suspect you did not arrive to it immediately, so I'm I'm, I'm very curious how. How you did the research for this and how you slowly arrived at these conclusions and these connections that you're making here?
0: That's a, that's a, that's a very good question. The research process, um, well, I started working on this project since I was a doctoral student. Now, what you see in the book is definitely uh, <laughs> quite different from the way I constructed my doctoral dissertation. So I guess I was... I was I was I was lost in my uh, as a doctoral student um but when I started teaching I had more time and more resources to really um do the research and think about this uh more carefully and so uh I spent a lot of time traveling to several villages in the Gambia interviewing people uh some of the interviews, great some good, some not so helpful. Uh, the time I spent in the archives were also very challenging. Uh, but I, I basically uh, had a had a had an approach that that um, I was just testing out. I, I nobody told me you have to do this. I just I just tried it out. First, I had uh, a number of different anecdotes. For example, the eighteen twenty one. Mandinari case that I that I that I talked about earlier. So I had a case like that so I read it in the in 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 a missionary account and 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 so I wanted to ask the people of Yundum and the people of Mandinari for example um what they know about uh the 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 the, the, the story. Uh that uh, exercise did not did not really yield any fruitful answers for me in the oral in the oral sources. However, uh, I talked about other cases um, uh, that occurred sometime in the middle of the of the uh, in the second half of the 19th century. So for example, the 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 land conflicts that engulf the communities of Bambali, Tandaito, and Kumbija on the Gambia's North Bank. Uh, These stories I saw in the first traveling commissioner's report on the North Bank dated 1893 to 1894, wherein when the British colonial government extended, uh, declared a protectorate over the Gambia, uh, uh, the Gambian uh, hinterland, uh, the first traveling commissioner to the North Bank was on a tour to the region and he visited Bambali, Tandaito, and Kumbija. And in some of these places, and Sarakunda, I should say, the people brought a complaint to him. That about 50 years ago, uh, during the wars that Said Mati or Biran Sisa fought, uh, St. Mati being the, being the son of, of Maba Jahuba, and Biran Sisa, one of the generals of Maba Jahuba, the people said, you know, our community either either align with this person or that person and when the war was finished and, 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 and uh, we lost or that person won, our land was taken away and given to this community. We want this land back. So with that anecdote, I was able to go to Sarakunda, Bambali, Tandaito and Kumbija to interview people. To my surprise, with little information from the archive, you can actually prepare yourself for better uh, questions, for more useful questions um, when you go into this community. So if you look at if you look at each chapter, I try to start it with something that I found in the documentary sources, and then uh used it to also um frame my 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 questions for. For, for, for the people that I interviewed. So that was something that I, that I tried out. It worked in, 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 in most cases, but not in all cases. Uh, another thing that I want to share also with the research process, as a junior scholar, I had to reach out to a lot of senior colleagues who gently, uh, you know, about my research, uh, but they gently warned me, uh, one after another, that there is nothing in the archives that would uh, that would provide evidence for what I wanted to do <laughs> so uh you know now as a faculty member, I am uh, a bit more careful about what to say to uh, graduate students um, never to speak in those strong uh, in those strong terms uh, that Nothing can be found. Uh, I'm happy that I was adamant that I wanted to do this project uh, because if I had listened to some senior colleagues, I would have abandoned this project early on.
1: Oh, that's that's very useful to hear, especially yeah. at this stage um, yeah. for me. Um, and there's something else that I wanted to ask you about. And the, the yeah. readers who are not familiar with the book or who haven't picked it up, um, can, can look it up online and see for themselves. I was very curious about the photo on the book's cover. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us more about it.
0: Sure. Um, oh, I, I like this image. Uh, it is the photo of uh, Kaba Cham, who was appointed chief of Western Combo. Kaba is a very fascinating uh, historical character. And his story reflect the kind of change that also happened uh, from the late 19th century to the early 20th century with the imposition of European colonial rule, i.e. the British uh, taking over the Gambia. Uh, one, Kaba did not come from the traditional Suninke ruling class. Um, so he was not a, 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 a Jata or a Bojang, uh, who historically had ruled uh, the kingdom of Combo for, for many centuries prior to their uh, their 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 their, their, uh, their uh, uh, removal from power, forced by the by the by the jihadists for the Silla, and later by the British uh, who took over this place. So so why was Kaba appointed as a chief? What gave him the political legitimacy to be a chief? Uh, that, that, I think, is a very, very important thing. But back to the image. Uh, the image illustrates a kind of dependency, relationship of dependency that I think the book discusses. First, it shows Kaba being someone to answer to the district officer, who is a white uh, British guy, his superior. Um, and so Kaba is seated uh, face to face with this. Um, with this white man who is seated in a, in a, in a more elegant chair uh, with his guards. Uh, but Kaba's people are also sitting behind him uh, on the ground, uh, which also shows another level of dependency. Then you have the background uh, uh, in which you see the landscape, the trees, etc. So I got this photo from the National Archives in London. I love it. It's great.
1: No, it's, and it is really a perfect uh, cover for this book because it, it captures so many of the themes that you then discuss in more details in the book and, and these processes, um, and especially the image of the the, the the forest and the trees in the background. Um, it's really striking. I So I wanted to ask you, I guess, um, moving a little bit away from specifically this region uh, of the Lower Gambia, what, what did you wish with this project for... African readers at large or readers interested in, in historical and contemporary Africa in general to take away from this book and from this research?
0: Very good question. Um, well, I was asked a question once um, when I was presenting an aspect of this research to, uh, to, to, to an audience, uh, a group of uh, people. And somebody asked me, um, Gambia is a very it's a very small place, and uh, so this case, how does this case really alter the the argument um, or the conclusions that other scholars have said about about other regions in Africa, which are bigger and more more perhaps more representative of, 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 of the African continent. And I said, well, uh, again, we have to go back to uh, what I had hoped to do as a, as a historian, that is to uh, at least uh, try to dialogue with the existing body of scholarship to show that some of these long-held assumptions that for a very long time, have been peddled by historians. Um, maybe are quite problematic. Maybe it's time for people to begin to revisit some of these some of these ideas. Now, for a very long time, I think when it comes to uh, when it, when it comes to the idea of spirituality and 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 land and and spirits, uh, and uh, uh, historians have abdicated, uh, uh, have abandoned. This, this 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 topic to the anthropologists um, and so they haven't really um, investigated it and that's not the case for all of Africa but certainly for West Africa I felt that I felt that there wasn't much attention being been being, 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 being um, paid by historians on this on this phenomenon so I wanted to first um, uh, Challenge this scholarship, this body of scholarship, uh, and hopefully uh, use it as a as a as a as a start uh, for another level of conversation that other historians, future historians, can have about uh, various other regions. So that's the first. The other, uh, you know, building on that, I I hope that this book highlights land's value. For production and sustaining power relationship, that 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 slavery was one level of dependency. It wasn't the only form of dependency. Um, for the Muslim elites of the mid-nineteenth century, there was a more effective way to create dependency. Uh, aside from slavery, um, slavery perhaps was 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 uh, uh, required a lot more. A lot more resources to maintain such an institution, but to have a, a group of followers and Taliban, uh, Muslim students around Amarabu, uh, that was that was another level of dependency that was not as threatening. And and so I wanted to talk about talk about those kinds of those kinds of um, uh, situations. The other thing that I also did not really want to get into. Uh, if you look at the study of pre-colonial Africa, uh, particularly for West Africa, much of the scholarship is centered on the Atlantic trade, and nothing wrong with that. But I wanted to focus on farmers, on peasants, on people who were tied to the land, who were not necessarily um, commercial agents, or or, or 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 were not people who were actively involved in the in the commercial ventures that. Ended up in uh, uh, that connected with the with the with the Atlantic slave trade. So that's 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 the other thing. Uh, obviously, the challenge uh, was that I could not go as uh, far back into the 18th century beyond the beyond the first decade, uh, the last decade of the of the 18th century. So I could not really talk about talk about that because of the 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 the, the limited nature of sources. But I gave a lot of examples of ways in which control of land by a group of people shaped relationships of social dependency over time. Um, And at the heart of this book's argument is that, again, colonial rule was not the only influence on change uh, or the changes in African institutions. Uh, In the Lower Gambia, forms of land control have been changing since the attack on the ruling class, which began. Uh, in the mid 19th century, and Islam was a significant force in this overall in this overall process. So these were these are these are some major themes that that, that I want uh, people to take in. And and finally, finally, if I may, um, I also think that um, uh, it's important that we try to also write African history with a great deal of attention to African worldviews, African ideas, and we can't do that very well without also respecting oral histories. Um, that, I, 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 I really cannot overemphasize that point. Um, the archives are just as, 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 as problematic as the oral histories. So the challenge is for us to how, uh, learn how to also glean from the oral sources meaningful ideas that we can use to communicate the African views as well, which are just as important as the oral uh, as the as the written record, which were which were produced mostly by Europeans. So, 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 so that's also another another important takeaway point that I think um, I would like readers to 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 know.
1: Mm. No, it's it's so important. And the book really does that. For me at least, it was really a model on how to really center these views and take them seriously, these African views, um, as opposed to just exploiting them uh in, in trying to write these histories. So yes, no, it, it really does that. And it it was it was really useful as a graduate student also reading this, um, as a model on how to do this later on. Um so Dr. Sa, I guess just one last question. I was I was wondering since the publication of the book, the book came out in, in 2016. Um, what else have you been working on? What big projects or small projects are in the works right now for you?
0: Uh yeah, I I was tired when I finished this, this project. <laughs> so so and I'm lazy, but anyway. Um so uh, since finishing the, the book in 2016, I've been working on two projects simultaneously, but one has now taken the backseat more than the other one. Um, the the first one was the the project on the liberated Africans and their descendants who were taken to the Gambia in Batos and settled there in Georgetown. So I've been working on that. On that project but that project would take me uh, more time than than the other one so so uh, so i focus uh since about uh i would say two years ago i focused most of my attention on, on this book on the history of the tijania tijania movement uh the tijania order in 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 in, in senegambia so uh as you know uh, there has been a lot of studies on various uh, marabouts who were tijanias and uh, who were who were tijans uh, but uh, one thing that i seem to seem to uh, see in this in this scholarship is that much of the gambia region uh, and south of the gambia that is um, southern senegal Kazamans and Guinea-Bissau are are, are basically absent in this literature. So I've been working on um, uh, an itinerant Muslim clerical family um, who uh, uh, took the Tijaniya Tariqa uh, into parts of the Gambia region, into Kazamance and Guinea-Bissau. Uh, one of the pioneers of this of this of this family was named Jerno Muhammadu uh who came from the Futa Jalon area in a in a, in a, in, a, in a village um, uh, in in Labe um, that's uh, called Sare Kali, uh, who then left uh, his homeland in Futa uh for Futa Toro, where he spent much of his education. Uh, before moving to Saint Louis where he supposedly received the the, the Tijania uh and then uh from 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 Seho Umar tal and then he was uh asked by Al Haji Umar to move south uh, uh, to the Gambia and into Casamance, into Kolda and, and and the Firdu country in general so he had trained a lot of a lot of uh, disciples who then uh, disseminated the the Tijani Tarik of water into the into the into the Firdu country for the most part. Uh, the Firdu uh, uh, are these fullers who uh, it's a dialect of the of the of the wider Halpular uh, language. So I've been working on that project, and uh, you know I was hoping to be back in Kazamans and. And parts of Guinea-Bissau this summer, but uh, like everyone else, we are stuck here. Um, so, yeah,
1: yeah, we are recording this during the, the COVID-19 pandemic, and obviously, it has changed a lot of um, it has changed a, a lot of plans and a lot of settings for many people. But um, you know, we're excited to see where this research will take you, and uh, also impatient to see the the results and be able to read about it. It surely sounds fascinating. Um yes, and, and again we've taken out a bit of your time today, so we'll wrap up, but thank you so much, Dr. Sah, for coming to talk to us today. So again for our listeners, this was Dr. Asan Sah, who was presenting his 2016 book, Islam, Power and Dependency in the Gambia River Basin, The Politics of Land Control, 1790 to 1940 which was published with the University of Rochester Press as part of the Rochester Studies in African History and the Diaspora. Thanks again very much, Dr. Sa, for your time today. It was really a fascinating and enlightening conversation.
0: Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to talk to you.